Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Today we're going to begin a new series um, that's entitled, Are We There Yet? And this series is basically going to be a study of the book of Exodus. We are not going to take every single verse, but by the time we're done with it, you should be proficient and literate um, in the understanding of this really important uh, book of the Bible. Every single one is, but this one particularly marks some things that I think are kind of important considering where we even just came from. Um, First of all, before I read you a passage, I'm going to read you somewhat lengthy the first chapter, but I'm going to read it out of the message version, which is an updated version, so it'll go down easy, okay? Um, Before I do that, let me give you some context first, Um, a little overview. The children of Israel um, begins with Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a point where he wrestles with God, and his name is changed to Israel, He has 12 sons. Out of those 12 sons come the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons is Joseph, and uh, he's betrayed by his brothers, tossed into a pit, we find in the book of Genesis. Um, He's sold into slavery in Egypt, but God graces him, and he ends up actually rising up to be a type of prime minister of Egypt. Very powerful, very influential. Um, There's a restoration with the family, and the family eventually comes to Egypt as well because there's a a famine that takes place. And Egypt was one of the few countries in the world of that time period, um, nation states, that had a consistent food supply. And one of the reasons why is this. Every place else, for the most part, depended upon the rainfall. And so if the rain didn't happen or was, was in a torrential case or something else, they didn't get their food supply. But... Um, Egypt's unique in that the Nile River, which runs through the entire country there, a very large, powerful river, um, floods its banks periodically. And when it floods over, it lays a layer of of rich silt down on the um, fields beyond that. And then it goes back to its original course. And so they periodically, like clockwork, would get um, uh, water and get these crops being able to be done. So the rest of the world's in famine. Uh, They have food. Uh, Joseph's in charge, reconciles with the family, and in order for the family to survive, they all move to Egypt. And this is a really great thing. He's in power, they're respected, everything's great, and they are part of the, the most powerful, most sophisticated culture and nation state of its time. But then something occurs. There's a change in leadership, and the way of these men and women who have been brought into this situation changes. Exodus chapter 1. Joseph died. All his brothers, the whole generation. But the children of Israel kept on reproducing. They were very prolific. A population explosion in their own right, and the land was filled with them. And then this passage. A new king came to power in Egypt 
over a period of time who didn't know Joseph. He spoke to his people with alarm. There are way too many of these Israelites for us to handle. We've got to do something. Let's devise a plan to contain them. Lest if there's a war, they should join our enemies or just walk off and leave us without workers. So they organized them into work gangs. They began to oppress them and limit them and put them into hard labor under gang foremen. They built the storage cities of Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the harder the Egyptians worked them, the more children the Israelites had, children everywhere. Egyptians got so they couldn't stand the Israelites and treated them worse than ever, crushing them with slave labor. They made them miserable with hard labor, making bricks and mortar and backbreaking work in the fields. They piled on the work, crushing them under the cruel workload. The king of Egypt had a talk with two Hebrew midwives. One was named Shifra and the other one's Pua. And he said, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the sex of the baby. If it's a boy, they did that in those days, looked at the sex of the baby. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But the midwives had far too much respect for God and didn't do what the king of Egypt ordered. They let the boy babies live. King of Egypt called to the midwives, why didn't you obey my orders? You let those babies live. The midwives answered Pharaoh, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous. Before the midwife can get there, they've already had the baby. Not exactly a kosher statement. Um, Actually, it's a lie, but it was in a righteous cause this time. And it says literally God was pleased with the midwives. People continued to increase in number, a very strong people. And because the midwives honored God, he gave them families of their own. And then the last verse. So Pharaoh issued a general order to all his people. Every boy that is born, drown him in the Nile. But let the girls live. Drown him in the Nile. But let the girls live. Last week, we talked, and I I shared you a a quote, actually, by uh, um, Abdu Murray. You know, he was pointing out the fact that there are two realities that we find in Scripture. One is that we're made in the image of God, and therefore there's something special about every single human being, no matter who you are. And yet we're also in a very sinful condition. And from this, he said, so in a very real sense, we're all born that way. We're all inherently and objectively valuable, yet broken in every way there is to be broken. I'm not broken in some ways, he says, I'm broken in every way, and so are you. How our brokenness is expressed, whether it's through sexuality, identity, morality, or something else, is a matter of wading through each individual's circumstances. Regardless, we're all born that way in the sense we all use our free will to go our own way. You have full expression to every disposition. And God wasn't mistaken in giving us free will. It's how we use it um, that's really the issue, and how we misuse it, I should say. Points out, though, yet God has made every effort to bring us back from the cascading brokenness by sending his one and only son to be broken for us, to pay the debt for what we've freely done to ourselves and our world. This is a uniquely Christian truth. Embracing that truth doesn't automatically, though, remove or change our broken desires. Rather, abiding in God's grace empowers us to resist satisfying those desires with ever greater success. God's glory and our blessing as they didn't leave us in our brokenness. And so the idea of grace, the idea that, that, that we're forgiven for our sin, that Christ paid the price for us and his sacrifice, and once we accept that, repent of our sin and say, I, I, I know I've done wrong. I acknowledge my brokenness, and I accept your sacrifice on the cross as the final sacrifice and the final death so that I may live. That we walk in grace then at that point in time and, and we are, are Christians, if you will. 
But it doesn't stop there. And this is a mistake that's being made in much of the church even today. Grace is much more than just forgiveness. It's the power of God working in our lives to transform us from the inside out. Grace is God's empowering presence in our lives. It gives us the strength to do what we could never do on our own. This process is the theological term for it is sanctification. And I don't expect any of you to, to get into that word a whole lot. But the concept is, is that once we're forgiven, there's something of a change that happens then. That grace empowers us and transforms us. And, and there's certain things that drop off. For some people, they instantly drop off certain habits or sinful issues. For others, it continues on and there's a struggle for a period of time. And even those who have those moments drop, it's not like everything drops away. Think of it this way for me. We talked about the thief on the cross last week, and we said how, how the one thief reviles Christ and the other one actually accepts him, if you will, in that moment of time. And we said how he's the only one that Jesus says, yeah, you're, you're going to be in heaven. The only one who gets that direct, I mean, you know, statement. So he's before, you know, the angel, and why are you in here? Well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. In other words, it's not through anything we do or our works or our righteousness. It's entirely solely upon the cross of Christ and his sacrifice. Okay, good enough. But let's play that scenario out for a moment. Let's just say that the, the thief doesn't die. Let's say there's some last moment reprieve and, and he's taken down from the cross and he's healed and restored and he continues on with his life and, um, and, and now he's saved by grace still. But what does he do? Does he go back to being a thief and now he's a Christian thief? Is that the concept? And, and we can laugh at that a bit, but that actually was something that came up ways back, and I think is actually practiced by more of us in this place than we care to admit. Um, 1957, Time Magazine wrote a brief article about a, a gangster named Mickey Cohen, and if you go into the gangster history, in the golden age of gangsters in the 50s, Mickey Cohen's right at the top of the, of the food chain. He's a, a wicked bad guy, Bugsy Siegel, all those guys. He was into all of that stuff. Time Magazine wrote this article in 57 talks about him meeting with the evangelist, with Billy Graham. Cohen says, quote, I am very high on the Christian way of life. Billy came up, and before we had food, he said, uh, he said what do you call it, that thing they say before food? Uh, grace, yeah, grace. Then we talked a lot about Christianity and stuff. And allegedly, Mickey Cohen came to faith in Christ. What didn't happen, though, is he didn't change his lifestyle whatsoever. In fact, later, after he'd embraced Christianity, he said he felt a little bit betrayed because no one had explained that God would require a change in his behavior. And so when his behavior didn't change, some of his Christian acquaintances said, hey, I thought you were a Christian now. And his response was this. Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politicians, why not a Christian gangster? Why should I change? He's got a point. If all these individuals and all of us who claim this title and use this term and there's no changes in us whatsoever that's observed, then what's it about? It's not just about setting us right before God, but it's to transform who we are. Children of Israel were people of promise. There had been a promise made to their great-great-great-grandfather, uh, Abraham, that was to be for all of the children of Israel. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, 
He was promised, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'm going to make you a great nation. They were meant to be people of promise, people with a tremendous future. And instead now, here they are literally in the mud, enslaved, having whatever identity they have from the low-end jobs that they have, burdened by what was there. This isn't unique to that time. There's a number of articles that have been written recently on a book uh, talking about the de-churching of America. And um, in one of those articles, actually in several of them, one of the things that the, the authors have identified is some of the cultural aspects within um, American culture. And one thing they've referred to is called workism. So this is the modern way of thinking that valorizes work, career, and achievement above everything else. Many Americans have come to assume that work can provide everything that humans once got from their religion, meaning, community, self-actualization, a sense of high calling. Modern life, they write, is oriented around the meritocracy, which implies certain values, that life is best seen as a climb toward the top, that achievement is the essence of a good life, that successful people are to be admired more than less successful people. But they all go on to say this over-reliance on our work identities is unhinging us. It's pulling us away from the ways of God. It's another type of enslavement. I'm not speaking against work, obviously, or against meritocracy even and, and effort and all that. But when that becomes our identity, then we find ourselves waking up in Egypt. These were people of promise that are now people of mud. They're caught with this, this identity that is so debilitating. It, it would have been very difficult to maintain a faith or an awareness of their heritage or their roots or their future in that environment. We have to remember that this had gone way beyond workism. This was into actual slavery. In addition, they're being seduced by the most sophisticated culture of its time, Egypt. And we don't get a full picture of this because I'm sure, how many of you have seen a picture of the pyramids? Okay, I mean, you've seen them, those broken down old piles of stone. You know, it's like, yeah, they might have been cool, but I mean, they're just junk piles right now, right? I want you to see this. This is what it looked like then and now. So this is now. But back then, it had a layer on top of what was here of limestone, polished and shining, that just the remnant is at the top. It would have glistened. On the top would have been a gold plating at the pinnacle of it that you can see there. This would have been a gleaming, powerful, nothing else like it in the world. It sits on the edge of the city of Cairo. And so when you're coming off of the desert, for miles you would see this reflection. For a nomadic people, this would have been culturally overwhelming and shocking. This is what they would have seen. This is what they would have experienced. A people at the pinnacle of power and sophistication. It would have awed them. And, and here's the thing that's kind of crazy about it. If you really know anything about the pyramids, you know that basically they had one purpose. They were tombs. And, and, and the whole orientation of Egyptian society was towards death. They had a whole industry towards building these things, constructing, um, shaping all this stuff and, and the afterlife and all that was part of that. And so they would have constructed this whole thing and then they would have buried the Pharaoh inside with all sorts of treasure for the afterlife because their view was you could take it with you. And so they pack it in. But think about this. 
because eventually, after a couple of centuries, they caught on to this. That big, giant, shiny little thing there is basically a giant kick-me sign. It's a giant sign that says, this is a great place where there's a lot of stuff stored. Come and rob me, please. And that's exactly what happened over the centuries. Every single one of those pyramids was robbed, broken into, oftentimes by the same priests or guards who had originally, or architects who'd constructed it. Every single one of them. So what happened is the Egyptians shifted gears after a couple of centuries. They were slow, but they eventually got it. And they began to not have pyramids, but to bury deep underground and create this elaborate tomb underground. They shifted a little further south to a place called the Valley of the Kings. And um, there's a visitor center there, but this whole thing you wouldn't have recognized in its day because that entrance that you see there to a tomb and the entrance behind me that you could see, can't see and other ones were all covered up so nobody could see them and it, it looked blasé. But this was a place where they would come and all those little markers, even beyond if you see there, there's, there's numerous tombs that you wouldn't have seen on the surface, but they would have gone way down deep and, and, and dug tunnels. And so this would be, if you go on, uh, where you would go way down into this, and the whole gallery would have been elaborately um, carved and colored and all the way down into this. And as you go down, we go down and we see the crypt, uh, the beginning of it right there, and it's all carved out of the rocks. It looks like a building, but this is all way deep underground. And then the next shot there that you have is actually the, the crypt there and, uh, and, and one of their favorite people hanging out there as well too. And the tombs are all underground and this will be a safe place. No pyramid to point out. We cover the entrance up and nobody knows it's there. And yet every single one of those was broken into and stuff stolen. The guards, the priests, the architects, somebody paid it off. There's only one that we've recovered. And it's the one you hear about, the tomb of Tutankhamun. And the reason why is because his tomb actually ended up by accident kind of being built underneath another one. And so they found this one and robbed it, but nobody even thought to look for another one deeper underground. This was a culture that not only worshipped death and was sophisticated in its distractions, it was one that, that had over 100 different gods and those gods would have been everywhere in, in physical form, giant forms to remind people. There's another picture real quickly if you roll that last one there. This would be in all the structure, numerous temples, over 100 gods. They had a, a frog god. They had a, a cow god. They had a, a sun god. They had a gnat god. They had a god of the water. They had a, a god of social media. No, I'm sorry. That's, I'm sorry. That's, the, uh, that's us. <laughs> They had over 100 gods. And so this is a culture at the pinnacle of its power with a people that are, are obsessed with death, with the confusion of all these different gods and all these different beliefs. And now these people of promise are now enslaved. These people that were meant to follow God are now stuck in a land of confusion with over 100 gods, people of promise that are now people of mud, now, it's kind of ironic in a way because we actually began as mud and then became people of promise. God takes some dust and puts it together and, and creates Adam or Adam. And out of that dirt, he breathes life and we're given the, 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 the very image of God stamped upon us. He marks us. He establishes something in us. And now here's the reverse. People of promise are now stuck in the mud making bricks. 
We're accepted by Christ when we come to him and we're forgiven. But is that the ending point? No, it's only the beginning of the journey. In Romans chapter 7, we're told, as we said last week, the trouble is not with the law, it's spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I'm all too human. A slave to sin. I don't really understand myself for what I want to do, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, if I'm aware of it, that shows that I'm agreeing the law is good, that that has shown me that I'm wrong, which is the purpose of the law. So I'm not the one really doing wrong in a way. I mean, I'm doing it, yeah, but it's sin living inside me that's doing it, that's distorting the image of God. And we talked about how then coming to Christ, he frees us from that. But it doesn't stop there. First Corinthians, Paul continues to write, chapter 15 says, but, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he's talking now a new creation. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any other, not by works to get in, but now that I have been forgiven and I've received grace, and I recognize now that grace is an empowering thing, I work to please God, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So he's using the same language as he does on the sin issue, that while sin distorts and twists me, grace not not only saves and restores me, but it begins to transform me, to change me. This concept of sanctification, of transformation, out of slavery, out of mud, into the promise that he intended for each one of us. He goes on in in Romans chapter 6. He says, well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of this wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we're joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. It's a symbolism of of being buried and, and then coming out of the water and coming alive in Christ. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we've also been united with him in his death, we'll also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin may lose its power in our lives. We are no longer what? Slaves to sin. I want you just to read that last sentence with me together. Just read that aloud together. We are no longer slaves to sin. I want you to read that one more time with a little bit of thought behind it. We are no longer slaves to sin. When we become saved, if we become accepted of Christ, yes, that grace frees us, but it also empowers us to no longer be slaves. Now, that doesn't mean that we still know right and what to do. The children of Israel are liberated from slavery, as we'll see in this journey. But they still had a long way to go to understand the ways of God. And it was a struggle for them in the process of that. The promise that they would have had um, from the very beginning would have seemed at times to have faded away. They would have been distracted by the confusion around them and, and, and lose track of their identity as God's people in the world that still they were immersed in, even though they had that sense of promise. Prince of Egypt, the musical, the cartoon. You're not going to bring that into conversation. Yes, I am. The Prince of Egypt, the the, the musical, the cartoon. Interestingly enough, the guy who produced that um, actually consulted with Christian and Jewish uh, theologians in regards to the story of the Exodus. He wanted to get it accurate. And he actually does a pretty good job. I hate to say this about a cartoon and a musical, but I have to say they did a pretty good job. 
There's a few points they messed up on or didn't follow through, like how Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, is conveyed is not biblically accurate. Um, the love story between, uh, um, for Moses' love interest and stuff, that's not fully accurate in initial parts. But overall, it has a, a, a lot of impact to it. And there's a song that came out of that that I think won a number of awards. It was sung at one point in time in Redone, powerful song by Whitney Houston and, and Mariah Carey, When You Believe. And I want to sing that song for you this morning, doing both parts, both Whitney's and Mariah. <laughs> We're done here. Okay. So many nights we've written. No, I'm not going to do it. But the song actually has some powerful phrases, even though they are not explicit and they're pointing towards God. It's present. Many nights we prayed, and imagine this with the people of Israel, people of promise, now people of mud, enslaved, and with this oppression, and with this confusion of all these gods, with this culture that's seducing them, and yet there's still something that held to the faith and was being passed down. Many nights we prayed with no proof anyone could hear. In our hearts, a hopeful song we barely understood. In our hearts, a hopeful song we barely understood. In this time of fear, when prayer so often proves in vain, I'm seeking faith and speaking words I never thought I'd say. We were made for something else, and so were they. And down deep, we know that even as they did. We know there's something not right with this world. As Christians, we understand what that is, and that does not build an arrogance in us. That builds a humility within us. For we recognize that we are part of the problem. So God's grace restores us and forgives us. But how ridiculous if it's to end there, still enslaved in every other way. It would be a ludicrous proposition. There's a story that it comes in different forms, but it, it, it's always the same. In this case, it's a bear who has been in captivity his entire life, and that's all he's known. He was born into captivity, and he's in a cage, and, and he's limited in this cage. He's never left out. It's just in this cage, and so the only exercise, the only experience he has is to pace within the confines of the cage. And then somewhere the powers that be decide that this is no life for this bear. He should be set free. A bunch of the PETA people all get together. They write petitions. They crowd around and they get this bear to get released. And so now they take him and they, they remove the cage and, and he's released out into the wild and the forest to go live a full free life. And the tragedy did you see the bear unable to comprehend his freedom? And so he continues with no cage now, but just marking out and pacing back the same exact perimeter of the cage with no awareness. Maybe it's the security of feeling that. Maybe it's this is what he knows. Maybe there's lack of awareness. And so eventually he has to be re-imprisoned and put back in because there's a realization that he'll never survive the freedom that he's been given. And it's the same with us. We find certain things... Um, comfortable about our old lives. We find something secure about the way that things have been. And so we stay, even though we've been given grace, even though we've been forgiven. But that's not the way it's to be. Romans chapter 12, we're told by Paul, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy or grace, in view of his grace, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. That's your true, that's proper worship. 
do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that we're not to be conformed to this world, but instead we're supposed to be transformed. But this is difficult because we've lived all our lives in Egypt. It may be called America, it may be called Russia or China or Canada, but it's all the same. It's cultural elements that are not in alliance with the ways of God. And there's safety in that. We're kind of drawn to certain aspects of our old life that, that we know may not have been the best, but it's known to us. This new way is challenging. The Israelites dealt with this much, and we'll see this as the journey goes on. There was a lot of those moments in time of those Israelites as they're traveling along, then they reached back for Egypt and all that it meant because as time went on, we'll see that, that while they leave Egypt, there are portions of Egypt that never leave them. And the same thing could be said of us in this room. Is that even though we, we've left the, the, that, 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 that the ways, if you will, there's parts of the ways of the world that haven't left us. And that's why the title of this series, Are We There Yet? Any parents? How many of you are parents? You know this phrase, right? Are we there yet? Kids are saying this, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you begin to say, why did we bring them? <laughs> and your spouse says, why did we have them? You know, and, it, and then it just spins out of control from there. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We haven't even started the car. Are we there yet? The same thing is what they would have said. And it is a spiritual immaturity in us. Are we there yet? But the other side of that question is, are we actually there? This thing that pulls us back, and Keith Green said it the, the best in his song, so you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure? Are you sorry you bought the one-way ticket when you thought you were sure? You wanted to live in the land of promise, but now it's getting so hard. Are you sorry you're out here in the desert instead of your own backyard? When those things begin to pull on us and we find the ways of God challenging then our spiritual immaturity comes out. Aren't we there yet, God? Haven't I done enough? Haven't I, hasn't enough fallen? Hasn't enough shaped in that? Uh, you know. But the truth of the matter is, as we move from this life of mud, as we move from this place of Egypt with all its confusion, and as we move increasingly towards the place of promise and what we were intended to be, the truth of the matter is, some relationships won't go with us. Some habits that we actually liked are going to have to drop off. Some traits will be changed and they don't carry over and we're going to want to go back. One of the things that's most important for the children of Israel is they had to stop thinking like slaves to even begin to consider leaving Egypt. The bear in them would constantly going back and forth and back and forth and as long as you think like a slave, as long as you think like an Egyptian, let alone walk like one, you're going to end up in the same place every time. They had to stop thinking like slaves to even consider leaving Egypt and having once left to leave it behind. And this is the same thing for us. We have to stop thinking like slaves. We have to step out and we let that part of, of, of Egypt that is within us die and drop off and fall away. We let, need to let the grace that we were saved in now empower us to live a different life and to learn a new way of doing things. Moses, even after all the journey, and now they're just ready to cross into the promised land. 
And after all that they've learned about God, Moses still has to talk to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, now listen, just before he's passing on, he says, I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. And if you do this, you'll live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you're about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, if you're drawn away to serve and worship other gods, the, the ones that you left in Egypt, then I warn you now that you'll certainly be destroyed. You're not going to live that good life in Jordan, across Jordan. Today, he says, I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessing and cursings. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make not to take the journey, not to accept Christ, but to live out that life and to seek the ways of the kingdom of God. Oh, that you would choose life, he says, so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. If you love and obey the Lord, you'll live long in the land. The Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the promises that were met will all come to you. You'll stop being people of mud and you'll complete and be the people of promise that you were intended to be. We're not just saved by grace. We're empowered. Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were what? slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children and because we are his children God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts and prompting us to call out Abba or Daddy Father now you are no longer a what? Slave. slave you're no longer a slave but God's own child and since you are his child God's made you his heir All of you, all of us who've accepted Christ have been adopted. All of us bring in baggage from our past and, and all the other things that were, that were about us in the past and how we were taught or abused or, or trained or what we thought success looked like. And now we're in a new family and we have to learn a whole new way of life, a whole new way of doing things. That's what adoption means. That's what being part of a whole new family means. And so the question this morning is poignant. Are you there yet? Have you left Egypt? Have you stopped thinking like a person of mud? Have you stopped thinking like a slave? Have you stopped thinking of a life of death and started thinking like the person of promise that you were intended to be from the start? Leaving Egypt is, is not just our identity, but when we leave Egypt, we, we also choose to, to analyze the world around us and look at the different ways that we act that conform with that world but don't conform to the new life that we've been given. And some relationships won't come along the way and a lot of other things will change. And in the process of those changes, in the process of everything else that will take place, there's going to be some difficulty in that. But here's the interesting twist in beauty as we close this right now. As we're drawn from the mud and as we're made these people of a promise, as we walk in grace, it's not only forgiven us, but now sanctifies and transforms us. Then the interesting thing is 2 Corinthians says that, that there's a little twist. But we have this treasure, this grace, 
in jars of clay. Now the mud has been taken and shaped into this, this, this receptacle that can hold this grace. And so it's, it's part of us, but there's something inside that's special. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. The humility stays. and not just the arrogance of people of promise and I'm God's chosen. Or, we're still clay, but we have something of God's grace inside. And this treasure's there. That people can know that the things we're able to do now, the habits we're able to break, the life we're able to live and is, is, is from God. And in that, that we'll stumble, in that we'll fall, in we'll have difficulty. But he goes on to say that we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We're going to be in this new life hard-pressed. but not crushed. We'll be perplexed and maybe occasionally confused, but never in despair. The persecution, that will come. That will just happen. But we're never abandoned. That we will be struck down, but not destroyed. Are you there yet? Have you left Egypt? Have you taken the grace that you've been given for your freedom to now live out a new life or do you stay in the cage even when the cage is gone? This is the question before us. But God's grace that forgives us and also frees us also promises to be with us through all the persecutions, through all the confusion, through all the hard pressings and when those other relationships walk away, he won't. So, Father, this morning we come before you. And Lord, I pray particularly for those individuals that perhaps responded very privately to you last week and received you as their Savior. They would now recognize that they just have begun the journey. And that for those of us who've been on this journey a long time and may have gotten tired and have sat still and, and have refused to move on in our process of sanctification, that this morning our spirit would be reawakened by your spirit to look and realize the different aspects and areas of our life that still need to be addressed by you, not in, in guilt and not in overwhelmingly being crushed, but just in awareness and that we'd rise up again to continue the journey of faith, of grace and transformation that we began by accepting you. This morning in this time and place, in your church and before your people and in the presence of your spirit, we pause, we acknowledge you, we ask that you speak to us in this time. Over the next few weeks, we will walk with Israel as they come out of slavery. It's hard when all you've known is slavery and people directing your lives to take responsibility for your own life, to think in different ways. And it's a different way of thinking entirely. And as they come out of this experience, they encounter God and to know Him and to understand Him and to learn a whole new way of life. And we're going to walk with them over the next couple of weeks in this journey. I hope you'll walk with us. There'll be those available up front here for prayer if you'd like to come forward for prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace that saves us. But I thank you, Lord, that you just don't leave us in the mess that we're at, that you actually transform and change us. So, Lord, in humility, we ask that you would walk with us with your spirit, that the same grace that saved us would now change us and that we would embrace the life that you've given us. Guide us, Lord, each person that is listening to this right now, Father, guide us
and in the unique ways that we need to walk before you. We commit these things into your hands in these next weeks and months of study. In Jesus' name, amen.